Well, if you can, track down a Bible and get with me in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 in the Bibles that we have here in the racks in front of you, that should be on page 827. 827. We're going to start a a little mini-series, a little Christmas series right now uh, that'll carry us through um, this Sunday, next Sunday, and then Christmas Eve as well. So Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to do my best to read a genealogy, and uh, we'll see how it goes. This is Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And all scripture is useful and profitable, so Lord, we claim that this morning you, by your spirit, through this word, would speak to us and help us to know why it is that you sent your son and some of the key features of that reality. We pray in his name, amen. You guys were very attentive. I think reading genealogies gets you kind of riveted, Uh, like, how's he going to do this one? Well, there are three things that we're going to notice here from a genealogy. It's kind of interesting to to think about how all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and even the portions of Scripture that you might look at and glance at and go, well, I'll just skip over this. I mean, is there anything of any relevance for anyone here? But the truth is, even, even the lineage of the Messiah is a significant reality. So what I want to show you here is three different aspects of this lineage. The first is that it's real. That the fact that Jesus came to earth through human birth, that he is a real flesh and blood person with a real traceable history, 
is, is, that's a significant reality. That's the first thing that we're going to find here. The second thing that I want you to see is that this Christmas story is a part of God's plan, that God has a plan that he has been working all along, and the arrival of Christ is the culmination of that plan and of that story of human history. And then finally, I want to show you that the Christmas story is a story of grace, that it's a story that, that applies and appeals to people that you would not expect to be uh, in friendship with God or in service to him. And we're going to see some of those features here toward the end. So first, the Christmas story is a real story. Now, the reason why that's a big deal is because it's telling us that the genealogy of Jesus is telling us that he is real and he is relevant for real life. In the ancient Near East, they would use a lineage as a kind of like a credentials, like here's why, here's this person and here's kind of his family lineage and here's why this person is significant. And, and, and so usually it's kind of populated with um, all, all kinds of different family relationships that are impressive. So you could say like, oh, look, I come from this tribe. I come from, I have this kinship. But here we see that Matthew is including some surprise features in this story, that he's going to include people that we would not expect. Um, but that there's a lineage here helps us to realize that the story of Christmas is grounded in real things. And people can look into them. Now, th this feature of the Christmas story and the good news of the gospel is a very important one. That's why later on in the Bible, Paul will say of Christianity that the historical events, if you take Christianity and you remove the historical events from Christianity, you actually lose Christianity. So he applies it to the resurrection and he says, look, if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't actually die, he wasn't actually placed in a tomb, and he didn't actually come back from the grave. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is pitiable. It, it is something that we should all just abandon. If those things did not actually happen, Christianity is worthless. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I would say that that same concept applies to the advent of our Lord as well. That if he didn't actually show up, then we're dealing with something that is foolish. But the fact that the Bible goes out of its way to show us this really did happen, and you can look into it. There is a traceable lineage in real time of human history leading to this one called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, th that, that means that it's, it's not a theory. It's not just a way of life. There are some things that we can talk about that are kind of spiritual principles, and people might say, look, if you believe these things, it'd be good for you. Christianity, I, lo I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, it's not just good advice. It's good news. It's an announcement of what God has done. It's a real thing that happened where God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, and that reality actually should inform everything that we think and feel about the Lord himself. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a bunch of essays on stories. You guys know him because he's such a f famous author, but he wrote some essays on uh, stories and myths and things like that, and he describes the usefulness of them. And what he's talking about is the fact that often we're drawn to fiction, we're drawn to story, and here's what he says. The value of the myth is that it takes all the things that we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. He's saying one of the reasons why we love stories is because it re-enchants our world. 
that we, we hear these things and we just kind of cruise through life. But when you read a myth, when you read a good story, it actually awakens you to the significance of everything. He goes on to describe it like this. We do not escape from reality by reading these things. We actually rediscover it. And so all good stories, Lewis is saying, all good stories point to the grandest and greatest story of the Lord himself. All good stories are meant to awaken us to the significance of this world that is made by God and for God and this world that the Lord himself has inhabited. So he goes on to say the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the other, but with this difference, it really happened. When we start to think about Christmas and we tell the story or we hear the story told, it's meant to awaken us to the magic of the world that God has made. It's meant to awaken us to the profound reality of God's saving work in this world. It's not just good advice, it's good news. It's the news of God sending his son to save and redeem and restore and reconcile this broken and hurting world. And so as we interact with it, we need to remind ourselves this really happened. And that means that our entire existence should be shaped around that one main thought. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He's done that for us. Well, it also tells us then that um, the realness of the story, it transforms the ordinariness of human life. If this really happened, if Jesus really inhabited the world in which we live, then it means that everything that we go through now has a, has a, a significance to it. I think a lot of times we can think about these big pivotal moments in our lives and we go, well, that's the important stuff or that's the significant stuff. Or if I were, do, you know, if I were doing spiritual things, that would be important. But the arrival of Christ in real time, the arrival of the Messiah to live the human experience, it tells us, no, everything matters. Our entire existence matters. The, the ordinariness of life matters. How you allow the, the lordship of Christ to rule over your regular week matters to God. And, and it's not just that God is after these huge, pivotal spiritual moments in your life. He actually wants to, to rule over the entire thing. There can be these disappointing and mundane moments in life, but the Christmas story reminds us God is Lord even over that. Paul Tripp puts it like this. He says, look, if God doesn't rule your mundane, maybe he's not your Lord. But the Lord is meant to be ruling over all aspects of the human experience. So the, the realness of the story helps us to understand the significance of what's really happening here. The second thing that we see is that the Christmas story is a planned story. It's a, it's a story that's unfolding according to a plan. It has, it has origins in human history. If you look at verse 1, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's bringing us all the way back through human history, even to the very beginnings. And it's showing us that this story is happening according to God's plan. It's, it's telling us about these Old Testament figures and the expectations that would be wed to the promises made to them. And it's showing us that the Christmas story is where those expectations are coming true. Everything that we've been longing for as human beings is being fulfilled in Christ. At the very beginning of the Bible, there's a promise that's made. After the fall and after sin enters the world, there's a promise made by God in Genesis 3.18. We call it the prototype of the gospel. He says, there's one coming 
who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And all of a sudden, we're on high alert, and we're, we're waiting for him. When does he show up? When does he come and make things right again? When does he come and restore us into that right relationship with God the Father? When does he come? And then Abraham gets that promise rehearsed to him. Abraham, the father, will, he will be called the father of many nations. In Genesis chapter 12, a promise is made to him. Through you, Abraham, you're going to have a child, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Again, it's the rehearsal of that promise, and we're now high alert. When does he show up? Who's this, who's this coming one who's going to bring all nations into worship? And we're told in Galatians 3 verse 7 that that's the gospel announced in advance to Abraham. It's the good news of the gospel. So now we're looking at this and we're going, okay, there's a promise and there's a plan. When on earth does that come true? And you go through all of these seasons of human history and there's expectation and there's longing and there's disappointment and there's just uncertainty. Is this, is this still in effect? Is God still going to do these things for us? And we get to a man named King David. And David is trying to do something special for God. He wants to build God a, a temple. And God says, no, I will build a temple out of you. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, you're going to have a child who's going to rule in Israel permanently. You're go it's the Davidic promise now. It's the promise that God is going to set up shop and rule through uh, somebody through the line of David. And again, we're going, oh, this is, all, this is all connected. There's all this expectation, all this anticipation for God's work to come true. And uh, we're waiting, and we see the next son, Solomon. We see his son ascend to the throne. We go, maybe, the, maybe it's game on. Maybe it's happening right then. And then we go, no, it's not him. It's not him. And again, we're waiting, and we're longing, and all this hope and all this expectation is being prolonged. And, and, and then human history marches on, and there are these seasons of, you know, we would even consider them dr a drought, a famine of God's word, and just like, what on earth is happening? Why is this taking so long? And here Matthew scoops up all of that, and he goes, this Jesus of Nazareth is everything we've been hoping for all along. This Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. This story that God has been telling, this story that God has been writing. It's been his plan all along, and now it is coming to completion in Christ. So this story is the plan, and it is rooted in the Old Testament. I tell people this all the time. If you want to know your Savior better, read your Old Testament. You, you will actually appreciate him more if you learn to see the Old Testament, anticipating him and all that he will be and do. But we see that God is sovereign. That's a part of this genealogy. Look at verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. He's, he's showing us with a literary form, this is by design. This is according to God's plan. Now, he, had, he, he was able to kind of choose the different things that he would show us. He was able to kind of show, okay, these are the people that I'm going to highlight here. Luke highlights other individuals. But here, he's using this organ, organizational strategy in his writing to say, everything that has happened was leading to this moment right now, when the Lord Jesus Christ arrives. This is God's plan, and this is by design. God is orchestrating human history for his own purposes. 
Grant Osborne puts, puts it like this in his commentary. He says, this idea is so prominent in Scripture. It's one of the, one of the primary messages of Scripture, but he says, the average Christian shows all too little awareness of this in their daily lives. This reality that God is in control and he's working all things according to his purposes, it's a major theme in Scripture, and it's one that's often lost on us. But we need to recapture this understanding that Osborne puts it like this, the same God who's guided the process of the coming of the Messiah guides the progress of our lives. God is in control. He, He is working things according to his good purposes. Now listen, if you step into any of these moments in this lineage and you try, to, you try to put yourself in the shoes of these individuals, it would be very easy to conclude, God must not be in control. Look at how long this is taking. Look at how messy this is. Look at how off this whole thing feels. But then you begin to zoom back and you go, no, no, no. It's all happening on God's timeline and according to his good purposes. So here's the thing that we have to learn to do. When we evaluate our lives, sometimes it's easy to come to the conclusion, God must have fallen asleep at the wheel. Like, look at the wreckage of my life. I'm not sure he's being very attentive to my needs. I'm not sure he's doing the work that he promised he would do. But what we need to do is recapture that big picture vision that when it all comes into into focus and we see the hand of God at work, in the, in the ordinariness and the disappointing seasons, we will begin to say, no, 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 God was in control all along. God was in control all along, working all things together for good for those who, who love him and are called according to his purposes. God's at work. We need to recapture that idea. This lineage reminds us of that truth. God is in control. He has a plan, and it is a very good plan. Now, we need to submit to this plan and trust him And we need to recognize that that plan centers and focuses on Jesus Christ. That the main thing that God is doing in this world has to do with his son and that son bringing salvation. And and one of the reasons why our lives can look and feel so frustrating is because we have lost that north point, that guiding star of our lives, that this is all meant to be about him. And we start pursuing other things and going after other things. But if we understand God's plan in the world, and that our lives are meant to be caught up in that grand story. It'll it'll repurpose our experience. Well, the third thing we find here in this lineage is that the Christmas story is a story of grace. It's a story of grace. Certainly, it's a story of grace in the sense that there's a Messiah, and he's coming to save and rescue his people. But the, the list itself gives us some surprise features. In the ancient Near East, I already told you this, but oftentimes you would include prominent individuals in your lineage as a way of saying, look at me, I'm important. I have this this kinship with these individuals. This list includes some very surprising features because it has people in the list you would not expect. First off, it has women, multiple women, which was unusual in the first century. In a patriarchal society, Women did not have the same advantages as men. They would not be included in a list like this. We understand, even today, some of those uh, things are still very true, that women do not have the same privileges and advantages as men. But back then, this was very surprising, that, that they would include women in the list. Okay, That's 
Strike number one, but here's the second thing about each of these four women on the list. They're all foreigners. So if you're trying to show this direct lineage, this pure line, why is it that Matthew is including people who are outsiders? Why is he including people who, from a Jewish perspective, they should not be on this list? And then finally, all of them have scandalous things in their background. They have things that you would say, this might, even, this might disqualify them from being included. And all of these different features are, are, are repeated over and over again. Let me point them out as we go. First, you have Tamar, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Tamar was a Canaanite from Aram. And if you look at her story in the Bible, she had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. So again, a woman, an outsider with a scandalous background, included in the list, leading us to the Savior. You've got, secondly, Rahab here. Look at verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who's Rahab? A prostitute from Jericho. A prostitute from Jericho, but repurposed in the power of the gospel to not just be the scandalous foreigner, she becomes a hero of the faith. She's mentioned again in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, where, where her act of courage is commended. Her, her faith is commended for her interaction with the spies from Israel. So again, this, we're, we're getting women, we're getting foreigners, we're getting these individuals with scandalous backgrounds, but, but God is saying the message of Christmas and the message of the good news is such that God is not troubled by our sketchy past or the unlikeliness of us being included. We might look at people and exclude them because they don't fit the mold of what we think a good person should look like. That's not the case with God. The third, the third woman we find here in the list is Ruth. Look at verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth, again, a foreigner, a Mo, uh, someone from Moab. And her husband dies, and she goes back with her mother-in-law and, um, and, and then uh, enters into a relationship with Boaz and uh, in some ways seduces him, um, but ends up marrying Boaz and, and, and is included in this list of the Messiah. Again, all these different features traveling through this list going, wow, that is not what we would expect. That is not what we would anticipate. And then finally, Bathsheba, verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite, again, a foreigner, David, in this case, seduces her, and they conceive, and, and uh, what you have then, again, over and over again, women, foreigners with scandalous backgrounds, and those are the people included in the lineage of our Lord and Savior. Okay, why does that matter? It matters to us deeply, because what you need to know about Christianity is it is not about people who have it all together. It is not about people who should belong on a list, including our Lord. That's the way that we evaluate the world. All too often, and Christians are, are very guilty of this, we, we divide the world out into good guys and bad guys. We put ourselves in the good guy camp, and then we, we describe why there are a lot of people who should not be included in what God is up to in this world. The good news of the gospel is God turns that on its head. And he says, no, no, no. 
The kind of people who will be included in my message and my story and my good news are not those who say, I'm so glad that I do all these good things. The Pharisee. Two, two men go up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he's praying and he's, the Pharisee's going, thank, thank you, God, that I do all these wonderful religious things and thank you that I'm not like this guy, this bum. And the other man, the, the tax collector, he hangs his head low and he beats his chest and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, only one of them goes home justified. It's the tax collector. When we think about the good news of the gospel, we have to get that down into our souls where we begin to realize, no, it's not good guys and bad guys. It's not us good guys against those bad guys. It is those who experience the mercy of God and those who are resistant to the grace of God. We need to recognize that God offers his grace freely to the undeserving, and we are undeserving. And then when we interface with the rest of the world, we don't look at people and and judge them and, and make conclusions about them because they don't fit the mold of what we think goodness should be. But we recognize that anybody can be somebody who experiences the grace of God. Anybody can be the kind of person who turns to God with repentance and faith and has their entire life repurposed. They can be included in the work of God in profound ways. The Christmas story is the story of grace. It's the story that tells us that God is at work in the world, drawing people to himself through his son to bring salvation. Grant Osborne says, God in his providence saw fit to include women who were foreigners and sinners in the royal lineage of Jesus so as to show that God is the God not only of the righteous Jew, but of all humanity. And he has come to bring salvation to the whole world of humanity. So we have this lineage to remind us this is a feature of the good news of the gospel. This is the message of Christianity. Verse 1 tells us that the Messiah has come. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I didn't know this until this week, but I noticed it in my studies for today. The word there is actually similar to the word Genesis. This is the origin, or this is the beginnings of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's actually trying to communicate something profound here. It's telling us this is, this is a new beginning. Like God created the world in Genesis chapter 1, God now is recreating the world through his son, Jesus Christ. God is making all things new in Christ. This is the new beginning. The arrival of Christ is the genesis of the new creation. Jesus is redeeming the world. He is reconciling the world to himself through his blood. So we have this story then that's a real story. We have this story that's, uh, that's unfolding according to the plan of God. And we have this gracious story that includes the unlikely. And all of it is meant for us to see the beauty of Christ and what he is doing that he is remaking the world in his image. And we, as his followers, get to be transformed by that reality, and we also get to participate in it by telling other people the news of who he is and what he has done. So let's pray right now and ask that God would help us to appreciate that fully this season. Lord, we thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you that you sent your son 
Jesus Christ to redeem us, to restore us, to remake us. Lord, help us to worship him. Help us to to submit our lives to him. Help us to order our entire existence around who he is and what he has done. Lord, we pray that we would announce and declare the news of what you have done in the sending of your son. Help us to be your ambassadors in this broken and hurting world and help us to to encourage other people to look to you to find salvation and restoration. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.